Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you do bless us. Father, the ways that we see and, Father, the ways that we don't see. Father, we know that you're constantly at work on our behalf. Father, we thank you for this time of year. We thank you for the camps that are going on right now, the camps that will continue to go on, for the ways that those will transform uh, young lives and old lives. Father, we thank you for that. Father, we pray that you'll, you'll bless those camp sessions greatly. Father, you'll help them to be um, times when your name is glorified and so that people will come to know you through those camps. Father, we also want to pray a special blessing on the group that is on their way to Arizona. Father, bless them with safety. Father, help them to be shining lights and examples for you in Arizona. Father, we know that they're going to bring great blessings to the people there, but we also know that the people there will bring great blessings to them, and we thank you for the opportunity that you have given them. Father, be with us this morning as we look at another story, another encounter of Jesus with someone someone who we might not have expected him to encounter and interact with. Help us to look at that story and take things away from it that we can use in our lives, Father, as we strive to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And, Father, we pray this through his name, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. So we're continuing with our summer sermon series, Face to Face with Jesus. Uh, We're looking at various encounters that people had with Jesus when they came face to face with Jesus. And we're exploring what those encounters meant for those people, how their lives were touched, how their lives were changed by those encounters. But more importantly, we're seeking to learn what those encounters mean for us, for us as disciples of Jesus Christ, as we strive to follow Jesus in all places, at all times, and in every circumstance. And we want to be those kind of disciples because we want everyone to know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. So far in this series, we have watched as Jesus explored identity with his disciples. And we learned that who we say Jesus is very much defines who we are and very much determines what kind of life we're going to lead. And then we looked on as John, the troublemaker, baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. And we saw the Spirit descend and we heard God speak. And we learned that John's message of repentance And John's message of baptism for the forgiveness of sins is God's message. And it should be our message as Jesus' disciples. And then in our third week, we stood on a roof with some men who had brought their friend to Jesus, their paralyzed friend. And they brought him to Jesus for healing. And we learned that we're all paralyzed before God without the healing presence of Jesus Christ. And we learned that we should be filling the role of the men on the roof and bringing others into the presence of Jesus so they too can come into the power of Jesus and his healing and his forgiving. And then we observed as Jairus, who was a synagogue ruler, but more importantly, Jairus, who was a desperate dad. And we saw him seek out Jesus because he was looking for healing for his sick 12-year-old daughter. And we saw their journey to the dying girl's side interrupted by a woman who had been suffering for 12 years. We saw her reach out to Jesus because she too was in need of healing. And we learned as Jesus healed the unclean woman and as he restored the unclean girl to life that Jesus' ministry is all about washing. It's all about cleansing. It's all about restoration. Restoration. 
And then we spent our fifth week at a dinner party, a dinner party at Simon the Pharisee's house. And there we saw a notoriously sinful woman teach us a lesson. She taught us that the emotional, extravagant, and uncontrolled behavior that's completely inappropriate for a dinner party is exactly the right response for us as we come into the healing and forgiving presence of Jesus Christ. And then last week we listened as Nicodemus had a very confusing conversation with Jesus. A conversation about rebirth and about the spirit and about water. And we learned from that encounter that Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus lives again to bring people like Nicodemus, but not just Nicodemus, but to also bring people like you and me out of the darkness of sin and into the light of Jesus Christ. And so this week, we're going to travel into Samaria, and we're going to watch a fascinating interaction between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. We'll be spending our time in John chapter 4, so this would be a good time to turn there if you'd like to to do that, John chapter 4. As we start, I think we need to understand that as we enter today's story, we're going to see Jesus do something similar to what he did at Simon's party. He's going to interact with a sinful woman. But unlike at that party, the party at Simon's house, this time it's Jesus who's going to behave in a completely inappropriate behavior. So let's watch and listen. John 4, I'll start reading with verse 4. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Well, at first glance, this appears to be a fairly normal interaction. But it's anything but normal because Jews simply would not have public conversations with Samaritans. And they certainly would never have shared a drinking utensil with a Samaritan. We don't need to go into all the reasons why Jews wouldn't associate with Samaritans. But suffice it to say that the animosity was long-standing The animosity was very deep-seated. It was very deeply rooted. And its roots were in racial and religious prejudice. So the fact that Jesus speaks to the woman is shocking. But the fact that he asked to drink from her jar is almost unimaginable. We should also note one other thing before we continue. Unlike most of the encounters we've looked at in this series... This woman isn't seeking out Jesus. She doesn't come to Jesus with any kind of agenda. In fact, she wasn't even looking for Jesus. She just came looking for water. So she's not looking for him to do something for her. So this encounter, unlike others, isn't surprising because it doesn't go the way we might expect. This encounter is surprising because it occurs at all. The woman's not looking for Jesus. She's just coming for water. So imagine her surprise when Jesus, a Jew, a male Jew, is at the well. And imagine her surprise when he asks her for a drink. 
So no wonder she asked, how can you, a male Jew, ask me, a Samaritan female, for a drink of water? Let's see how Jesus replies. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? This kind of reminds me of last week's story with Nicodemus, because Jesus often seems to reply to questions with answers that are designed to confuse, answers that are designed to lead to more questions, to questions seeking out clarification about what Jesus is really talking about. I mean, how confusing must this be for the woman? There's a thirsty man there who's asked her for water because he doesn't have any way to get the water himself. And now he's suggesting that she should have asked him for water. And not only water, but she should have asked for living water. She should have asked for running water, like from a river or a stream. So the woman's incredulous response to Jesus isn't at all surprising Because Jesus doesn't even have a bucket. He has no way to bring water out of the well. And he's offering her water. Her response isn't surprising because Jesus is offering that living water. He's offering her moving water. He's offering her something that the nearest source is miles away. And finally, Jesus seems to be suggesting that he could provide something that even even Jacob couldn't provide. A source of water for the people, a source of water for their flocks, a source for their herds that they didn't have to do any work for. They didn't have to draw out of a well, something that would be available from them at all times, for them at all times. So how will Jesus respond to her next question? She asked, are you greater than our father Jacob? Verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So Jesus' answer is yes. Yes, I am greater than Jacob. Because I can give you water that once you drink it, you will never be thirsty again. So again, it isn't surprising that the woman reacts with enthusiasm. Because Jesus seems to be offering not only the solution to her immediate need, her immediate thirst. He seems to be offering her a solution to that permanently, forever. Never be thirsty again. I think she must have the mental image of a life free from these daily trips to the well. These daily trips of carrying the heavy jars to the well, filling them up with water, and then going back home with even heavier jars because they're full of water. She imagines a life free of this unending chore. You know, she's all for that. She's ready for that. No wonder her response is, sir, give me that water. Give me that magic water that will quench my thirst forever. Well, as readers we realize that the woman's imagining something very different than what Jesus is talking about. 
Jesus is offering something very different than what's going through her mind. Again, it reminds us of, our, of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. The conversation about being born again and Nicodemus's confusion. Because like Nicodemus, this woman is fixated on the physical. She's fixated on water and she's fixated on thirst. But Jesus is focused on the spiritual. So let's see how Jesus manage, manages to shift her focus from the physical to the spiritual. Verse 16. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. That's a really sudden shift that takes place, isn't it? She goes from saying, sir, give me this water, and Jesus replies with, go get your husband. A very sudden shift. And the conversation that follows that shift is very revealing. See, when the woman answers that she doesn't have a husband, she's being honest. But she's also providing an answer that's very limited. It gives the surface fact about her history with marriage and husbands, but it doesn't reveal the whole history with marriage and husbands. But it does set the stage for Jesus, does set the stage for him to tell the rest of her marital history. And when he does tell the rest of that history, he provides a revelation of identity. He provides a revelation of identity, not only of his identity, but of her identity. First, Jesus reveals that she's someone with a past. She's someone with a history. You know, there's some debate among scholars about whether the woman's been married five times and divorced and is now living with someone who's not her husband, or if she's actually a polygamist who's actually had multiple husbands at the same time. But that's really, that's really not important for our purposes this morning. The important part about this exchange is what Jesus reveals about the woman what he reveals about himself. Jesus reveals that the woman is one of those kind of women. She's the kind of woman that devout men of God would never associate with. In fact, she's a woman that has a lot in common with that woman from Simon's party. The woman who caused Simon to think, if Jesus was really a prophet, he would know who that is that he's interacting with. But Jesus knew who she was And Jesus knows who this woman is. And when he reveals her identity, he also reveals that he is a lot more than the polite sir that she's been referring to. He's not just a sir. He's not just a religious man. And the woman recognized this. When he revealed her past, she recognized that he is a prophet. She recognized that he is from God. But then she does something that I think really rings true. Rings true for me and may ring true for you. Because she does something that's exactly the kind of thing that we often do. So rather than allow Jesus to focus on her past, what does she do? Well, she changes the subject. She changes the subject to something else. And knowing that Jesus is a religious man, she knows just what direction to take the conversation. She knows how to take the conversation away from her past. 
She thinks that maybe, just maybe, if I bring up a religious controversy, it will distract Jesus from dwelling on my past. And she chooses a good controversy. Because Jews and Samaritans disputed virtually everything having to do with religion. They disputed virtually everything, including what's the correct scripture to use, what version we should use, and the correct location for public worship. Sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? So she thinks this diversion just might work, because certainly this religious Jew will have a strong opinion about whether we should worship on this mountain or we should worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus certainly does have a strong opinion about worship. Let's hear his opinion about worship. Verse 21. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Jesus declares that the controversy about where to worship is really meaningless. That controversy is null and void. And in fact, it's his appearance on earth that makes that controversy meaningless. See, Jesus' appearance on earth is God's declaration that worship will no longer be tied to external and physical places. Places like cities, people like, places like mountains, places like temples. But his appearance signals that worship will now be tied to internal, to spiritual spaces. Because God isn't physical. And because he isn't physical, he isn't tied to physical space. He isn't confined to a physical place. So true disciples, true followers, true worshipers can and will encounter and worship God in every place. They'll encounter and worship him everywhere. They'll encounter and worship him truth to truth and spirit to spirit. So the answer to the question is, must he be worshipped in Jerusalem? The answer is, yes, he must be worshipped in Jerusalem. But he also must be worshipped on this mountain. He also must be worshipped right here next to Jacob's well. He also must be worshipped in Albuquerque, New Mexico. True worshipers, true disciples will worship God at all times, in all places, and in every circumstance. And the woman shows something interesting about her. She shows that she knows where to look for the resolution to spiritual questions. She knows where to look for the resolution of spiritual conflict. She knows that it's Christ It's the Messiah who's able to explain. So this woman demonstrates that she's not only focused on looking for water, she's looking forward to the Messiah. She's looking for Messiah. And then when Jesus announces to her that she's actually standing face to face with the one that she's looking for, 
We have to wonder, how is she going to respond to that? You are standing face to face with the one that you're looking forward to. But first, we need to bring the disciples back from the town with the food to the well. Verse 27, just then his disciples returned and were surprised, which I think is probably a huge understatement. They were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or, why are you talking with her? No one asked the woman, what do you want? And they didn't ask Jesus, why are you talking to her? But boy, I bet they were thinking those questions. But that brings us now to the woman's response to Jesus' claim that he is indeed Messiah. Verse 28. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and they made their way toward him. I want you to have a mental picture of what's occurring now. People are leaving the town. They're walking in groups through the fields toward Jesus. So Jesus and his disciples can see the people walking towards them. And while the townspeople are walking toward them, toward the well, towards Jesus and his disciples, Jesus says this in verse 35. He says, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. And then in verse 39, we read, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. And there's a lot of good stuff in those verses. But let me just highlight a couple of things. The first is, isn't it interesting what the woman does with her new knowledge about Jesus' identity? She hurries back into town. She calls her townspeople together and she says, come and see a man who may just be the Christ. Her invitation is for them to come and see to come and listen, and then answer that question for themselves. After they see, after they listen, they can answer for themselves, is this the Christ? And we should also notice that Jesus uses this opportunity in the midst of foreign territory, as groups of people who are despised by the Jews are making their way to him. That's when Jesus calls on his disciples To see a world that is ripe for harvesting. I'm sure the field isn't where they would have expected it to be. I'm sure the crop isn't who they would have expected it to be. So Jesus to his disciples reveals that their work as his disciples is going to be very different than what they would have been expecting it to be. Different fields. Different crops. And then... As the story concludes, we need to recognize that it's a woman with a problematic past who's able to lead others to Jesus. She's, there, she's able to lead others to Jesus. He's the one who's able to assure their future. And I think that's exceptionally good news for those of us here with problematic passes, pasts. 
Because we are exactly, we with problematic past are exactly the right people to lead others to Jesus Christ. So in the few minutes that we have left, let me leave you with five areas of application to take with you today. The first area that I want us to focus on is that we all, all of us as humans, have the tendency to believe that we can quench our thirst with our own buckets. We can quench our thirst with our own buckets. We tend to believe that we can locate the well. We tend to believe that we can draw the water. We tend to believe that we can take care of every thirst, every need, every want we might possibly have. We can do that on our own. But also, I think all of us deep down know that that's just not true. We know that from experience. We know that it's just not possible for us to be able to do it on our own. Because our thirsts remain. And we know that what awaits us tomorrow is just another tedious search for yet another well. As we're seeking to quench our own thirst. But Jesus offered us a different way. A better way. A different water. A better water. Jesus has offered us a water that satisfies our deepest needs. But we also need to recognize that accepting that gift requires us to see ourselves as Jesus sees us. And Jesus sees us all as desperately thirsty people who are unable to satisfy our true and deepest needs on our own. Jesus calls us to lay our water jars aside and to freely admit, to truthfully acknowledge that we can't satisfy our soul's longing on our own. And then we're able to accept his offer to forever quench our deepest thirst. I'm reminded of the words of the psalmist who have sung the song already once today. We're going to sing it again at the end. I want us to consider making the words of the psalmist our words, to recognize that his words should be our words because that's the true state we're in. He said, as the deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So as we look inside ourselves and recognize our thirst, we should be panting, we should be longing for the living God who can quench our thirst. But here at Jacob's well, Jesus doesn't just call for us to look inside ourselves at our own thirst, at our own deep needs. He also calls us to look outward and to see other people the way that he sees other people. Because Jesus sees an entire world full of thirsty people. He advises us to recognize that all people in all places share our same thirst. All people are panting. All people are longing for the same thing that we are. And they just need help finding Jesus at the well. And Jesus, in this interaction with a Samaritan woman, this woman with a problematic past, demonstrates to us that ethnic, Gender, religious, and moral gaps shouldn't prevent the offer of life-giving water. You know, if Jesus was willing to behave inappropriately, according to the custom of his day, if he was willing to bridge the gaps between him, the Son of God, 
and this Samaritan woman with a problematic past, we as his disciples must be willing to also behave inappropriately according to our customs. We must be willing to bridge every gap, any and every gap, to offer the life-giving water of Jesus Christ. And finally, I want to suggest that this Samaritan woman provides us with a picture of how true evangelism works. You know, she had a very simple invitation. Her invitation was, come and see the one who may just be the answer to your true thirst. It's pretty straightforward. And I think it's something that we should model, we should copy, we should make our own. We should be inviting thirsty people to come and meet Jesus. And then let them decide if they're ready to accept his offer of living water so they don't have to thirst anymore. But I also want to caution us. It's awfully hard to convince someone else that Jesus might be the answer to their thirst if we're still carrying around our own personal water jars. It's hard to convince them that Jesus is the answer to their thirst if we, as his disciples, are panting and longing after money. It's hard to convince people that Jesus will be the answer to their thirst if we, as his disciples, are panting and longing after status, if we're panting and longing after possessions. In fact, it's going to be very difficult to convince anybody that Jesus will be the answer to their thirst if we're panting and longing after anything but Jesus Christ. So what we need to do instead is acknowledge that Jesus is the answer to our thirst and invite others to come and see if maybe he's the answer to their thirst. So my invitation to all of us here today is to set aside our water jars and allow Jesus to satisfy, to quench our deepest thirst. But you may be here this morning feeling like you have a problematic past. A problematic past that prevents you from being able to come into the presence of Jesus. And I want to tell you from the bottom of my heart that that's just not true. See, Jesus has bridged every gap to make sure that your past doesn't have to be your future. Your future can be with the one who brought living water to the Samaritan woman. So if you're ready to accept Jesus' offer of living water, if you want to make sure that you don't thirst anymore, won't you let us know? Because we would love to help. You can let us know in a couple of different ways. We're going to stand up and sing a song here in just a minute, again, about longing and thirsting for Jesus and for God. And while we're singing that song, you can walk to the front and you can let us know that you have this need, you have this desire. If you're not comfortable doing that, there's also a couple of men that will be back in room 104. During the singing of the song, you can make your way to the back and ask for directions to there in a more private setting. And they would love to talk to you about the one who has satisfied their deepest thirst. Whatever your needs are, won't you let us know while we stand and while we sing.